Welcome to Tri-Lawyer Talk. I'm Scott Glovsky, and I'm your host for this podcast where we speak with amazing lawyers. Today, we've got a great, great story from Eric Fong. Eric is a wonderful trial lawyer who practices out of Port Orchard, Washington, but tries cases all over the country. And the theme today is about overcoming fear, dealing with obstacles that we face in trials and strategically how to get past those obstacles and move past that fear and get on with telling your client's story. Eric got a verdict of $91 million a couple of weeks ago in a case that was not easy by any stretch of the imagination. There's a lot of lessons here, so we're going to break it into two episodes. But let's get started with the first episode. I'm very psyched that we have Eric Fong with us. Eric's a wonderful guy, great lawyer, creative, present, charismatic, and and incredibly caring. And Eric's going to share with us again, fortunately, I'm very thankful that he's here again, uh, the story of a case that he just tried a couple of weeks ago. And Eric, thanks so much for hey, being Scott, with us. Scott, good morning. Thank you for having me. It's This is important. Can you take us to a scene that can help us understand your story in the tr- the case that you just tried? Sure. Uh, a scene of the case that helps tell my story. And when I hear that, I hear my story. Well, how does it relate to me? And, you know, that immediately ma- makes me want to talk about the jury because the stories that they hear, of course, relate to them. Um, but that's a, that's another, that's a topic for another day, but it is, I think it's really important to note that everything we do in court, you know, we are guests in the jurors' homes and we need to treat them with the utmost respect. And they, of course, are the focus of everything that's going on in that courtroom. And that's something we should talk about later. But, you know, for me and my story or the story of this case, this morning I was talking with my fiance, Courtney, and she was there every step of the way in the workup of this case. And, and we were reminded, I was reminded of how hard trials are because of the you know, we, we put so much effort and energy into choreographing our cases and, and we, we have this expectation that it's going to go a certain way because that's how we plan it. And that's, that's just the way it has to go. And if we do all of these things, we're going to win. And expectations are kind of like resentments waiting to happen. You know, we get stuck on these rigid beliefs and ideas and we lose the ability to adapt to what's happening in the moment. And right out of the gate, this trial was not going the way I had hoped or expected it or, or you know, my expectations were not materializing. And 
the the first kind of devastating blow was that the jury selection process is so important to getting these trials off on the right track. And that's this opportunity for us to sit down and look at, you know, these good people and make these human connections and, and talk about, you know, these lofty principles of truth and justice and, and the law. And of course, when we go into these, you know, trials, we, we have this fear of the group of people that we're going to meet with. And so we come up with all these great questions of how we can um, ferret that out so that we can get a fair trial. Well, I only had 20 minutes. And this was a case that that is not jumping out at anyone as, oh, that's why the law should intervene. It was a, a robbery at a store where a customer got hurt. So it's not like a car crash case where someone's driving on the phone and they rear end someone. It, it, it was complicated by, you know, business agency law and then some third party criminal that, you know, did the actual damage. And that takes some time to develop and talk about. And I had 20 minutes and all of that time was consumed talking about, you can guess, you can imagine frivolous lawsuits. I don't get any deeper than that. And I was at the end of the 20 minutes, of course I was heartbroken. I was, I was crushed. I was, I was negative. Eric, let's go back to that moment. You're, you're back there. Set the scene for us. Well, I'll take it to the lunch. We walk out of jury selection and we're at a pizza parlor just down the, the, the road. And I'm there with my team and I'm just heartbroken. I'm just heartbroken because I have decided in my mind, my thoughts have taken over my feelings and I have decided at this point that, you know, we're done. It's like, I have a group of people that don't believe in the justice as I see it. And I have a group of people that aren't going to give my client a fair chance. And I was moping around and um, it was hard for me to snap out of that. And, 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 and thank God, you know, that we have these breaks in the day or in these moments, because you have to, you can't bring your garbage, you know, to the dinner table and expect other people to want to hang around with you. Right. And so I remember talking to, who was it? I called someone up and I was explaining, you you know, this sorrow I was in, you know, all these years of putting, this case together and, and all this effort and resources and look at, you know, this jury that I have and how unfair it was 20 minutes and 20 people to pick from on your veneer, right? That was 20 people out of 20 people. We narrowed no for causes. We had our jury and there is a chunk of people on there that, that scare me. And this person said to me, you know what? You got to forget about that and fall back on your preparation. You got to go 
Well, let me let me stop you for one moment there. I want you to be in this moment where you're in this pizza parlor, and I want you to reverse roles with your fear. Okay. Fear. What what's going on with you? This is to the, these are things I can't control, and I'm getting steamrolled, and the, and I have no power to control it or stop it. And the next logical step or the next emotional step. I don't know which one of those it is, is that I'm going off a cliff. This whole case has just gone off a cliff. And, and fear, what, what are your ingredients right now? You are, you are tearing apart Eric, but what, what are you, what are the things that, that is going to go wrong or going to go wrong in his life because of what's happening right now? My words will be empty no one's going to listen to me. No one's going to give my client a fair chance. And I'm going to lose. And what, what does that mean for Eric? What does Eric have on the line here? My ego, my wallet, my client's life. The, 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 the last three, four years of 100% commitment to winning this case because it's righteous and it's important and it matters and all that work for the right reasons. You, you know, everything that I did that I believe was honorable and above board, it didn't matter. And once again, the bully and the bad guy is going to win and it doesn't matter what you do because sometimes the ball doesn't bounce your way and you just get screwed. And I just got screwed. Do you feel powerless? I did. I did until that phone call. So let's, let's, is there anything else we need to know about you fear at Mm -hmm. this moment? Okay. Let's reverse back, Eric. And yeah, I already feel better. You know, like going back there was, I didn't like that, but there's anyways. uh, Yeah. Go ahead, Scott. So, so you, you, you felt this fear and then you, how did you deal with it? What happened next? Part of it is the reality that you got to keep going. Duh. You know, like you got a case to try, you know, pull up your pants and buckle your shoes up and let's go. You know, it's on. This is, forget about all that other stuff. Who knows? You know, like, like you're playing mind games with yourself and you got to just stop that. And like that person said, you fall back on your preparation. And I would say little things to myself to make me feel better that, you know, conservative, you you know, right wing wing jurors. Well, you know what? We know that they can be pushed over the edge to be really great jurors. We know that. And so quit judging them and maybe they won't judge you and just go in and embrace the, the, the humanity of this moment and the truth, the truth and the confidence that, that justice is on your side. 
and um you know, I, I think I moved on pretty quickly, you, you, you know, like these moments where we have these profound disappointments, you, you, you have to be able to, you know, I had, I, I had to move on because I had to give an opening statement the next day. Where do we need to know to go next to understand the story? I would say, that night, I was consumed with the motions practice. Me and my my team and I, the defense. Um, I I don't know if it was intentional or just you know probably I don't you know like give them the benefit of the doubt. It just happened this way, but they were throwing the trial schedule off with what I believe to be pretty f- poorly thought out or frivolous motions arguments. And, and lots of new disclosures and briefings that was requiring a ton of energy on our part to address. And that night, I don't remember the specific legal issue, but I remember staying up until three in the morning writing a brief so that we could file it with the court the next morning right away to prevent the defense from doing something in opening statement that I was anticipating. And we were driving from my house to court and we're going over the Narrows Bridge. And I was rehearsing with with Ken and Courtney. I was moving for a mistrial. That day I was going to move for a mistrial. I did move for a mistrial. And I was rehearsing the points and making the bullet points of, you know, why a mistrial was necessary at this point, which was not a fun thing to do. Um, I couldn't even imagine if it had been granted, but I felt like it was, it had to be done. And we get to court and we're arguing these issues and the court denies the mistrial. And I remember the judge looking at me and asking me if I was okay. You know, like, 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 you know, Mr. Fung, are you all right? And I don't know where that was coming from. And she asked if I needed a minute because the jury was walking in that, you know, that we, we had finished the motion stuff and now we were getting ready to go straight into opening statements. And I was exhausted. I was upset. I was uncertain of, of myself and what was going on. And I knew that in a, in a matter of minutes, I had to stand up in front of a jury and give an opening statement. How did you deal with it? Well, thank God I had prepared it a lot, you know, so I, I, um, I, 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 like that person said, you know, I fell back on my preparation and confidence, but, and I have had enough trials where I know the, the, you're done if you cannot 
because the jury, you, we have to remember that people are bringing with them their experience of what of what they know. And these 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 fourteen people, the two alternatives, and and the the the, the twelve, two plus twelve, fourteen. They're walking into this room. They've just been sworn in. The introductory instructions have been done, and they're going to sit down and they're going to be introduced to the facts of the case. And I am at that very moment, I am boiling with kind of this anger at the defense lawyers. I'm dealing with that emotional fallout of the the jury selection not going the way I had hoped or wanted. And I knew that if I didn't push that aside, I, I didn't have time to deal with it. Of course, you know, the jury was right there. I had to push it aside and I had to remember that this jury knows nothing about that. And if I interject that negativity or that emotion or that fear and they can see something in me is not right, that's not a very good impression that is our bank when we give a closing argument. You know, our credibility is our, um, you know, these feelings and relationships of, of that, that formed in jury selection and continue to get stronger as the trial goes on, if I didn't tend to the relationship of my credibility with these people and forget about the drama that had just happened in court, that would be far greater than losing the mistrial. That, that, that flaw or that catastrophe would be far greater than losing legal arguments. And so I put it aside. I, I grabbed my notes and I slipped into trial mode and I was able to, to do it. And I understand there was some difficulties in this time of the, the day of your opening statement. Well, um, yeah, holy cow. The, you know, the, 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 that's so this, the, the West Coast was in the grips of a heat wave and not the one that we just had where it was like 110 degrees, um, but it was hot and we were in this makeshift community center courtroom and the air conditioners were out and it was the the court the, the temperature in the courtroom you know was approaching 85 degrees for consecutive days and this was the first day of this absurd heat and the judge you know she's like look it's hot and i told the lawyers they could take their coat off and you guess how many lawyers you know there's six lawyers lined up guess how many lawyers took their coat off one and that one lawyer took their coat off and rolled their sleeves up and it was me and you, you know because there's this i don't know you know this idea of a lawyer and and putting on this show or this front or looking a certain way and acting a certain way flies in the face of human connections and we want to look the part we want to talk the part and and we we feel this need to create this image and i have you know through the work of jerry spence the trial lawyers college 
and the personal journey of just being real if the ju- if it's 85 degrees and it's hot and the judge says take your coat off i'd rather i I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to go into shorts and a t-shirt if she would give me that leash to do that you know and so i i i wanted to do that to one be comfortable because that's what i needed to do physically but i also wanted to do it to to connect with the jury i'm one of you you know like we're all in this together I'm no different than you, like, duh. And so I was actually, you know, glad that it was hot. The other thing that was going on was um, I I had just gotten over limping from a, (laughs) um, a nasty, nasty knee injury where all of my meniscus in the knee blew out not the meniscus well yes the meniscus the cartilage both ligaments and tore the calf muscle and broke the leg it was a it was a really bad injury um where the orthopedic surgeons were like "Ooh, this is you know this is interesting and i had just i did that on march early march and this trial started may 27th or something and so i had just gotten over this you know, where my body was letting me walk, where my normal gait could come in and pretty, you know, you were lugging around boxes, you're up and down. I had, I had not been anything close to being active. And all of a sudden I'm in this trial, which is an extremely physically, you know, that's a surprising thing maybe for, for folks, how physical a trial is, but pretty early on, my knee did not like it. And so yeah, those were the physical things that were going on at the time. And I understand you were, you know, basically with your knee pain, you couldn't even barely stand. So you were doing your examinations with your leg up, you know, on a chair. Well, I don't know about that. Um, but yes, I, I ended up resorting to sitting for a big chunk of the trial because if I, you know, I needed to, I had to. And, um, and we were talking about opening day, by the way, before I detracted you. Yeah. No, the opening statement, I was in the opening statement. I was, I was, uh, well, that's the, you know, the other thing was, is that the space was so restricted that there was this podium that we were told we had to stand behind. And I'm, uh, I like to kind of like roam around. Um, I like to move. I like to, 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 to use the space appropriately so that I can make stronger connections on the outer reaches of, of, you know, my eyesight, so to speak, you know, when you look at someone, you get a much closer personal feel with the closer you get to them. Right. And so I, I try to use all that space and in this room, you couldn't do it. We weren't allowed to do that. You could not, walk around because of COVID social distancing, we were allowed, thank God, when we were talking to remove our masks. And, um, and so I stood behind the podium, I was up and I, and I delivered the opening statement that I, I think, frankly, you know, set the tone for the whole trial and may very well have won it. Uh, and, and, and so 
yeah, I moved on pretty quickly from every day got better and better and better. You know, if we started out rough, I do remember when I moved for the mistrial, the lawyer, the defense lawyer said something to the effect of, oh, he's just upset because he's losing, you know, and (laughs) um, so there's a, you know, and and we were, we were at the time. I I think that might have been a fair statement. So where do we need to go next? Because you did mention that there was some violations of motion. Yeah, when we were talking. So, so the defense lawyers opening state. So there were a lot of um, unsavory facts that I needed to keep out. I or I so I thought that I wanted to keep out, and the court agreed. Um, prior um, drug use of not not we're not talking about marijuana. You know, we're talking about like hardcore. Um, synthetic junk. There was some criminal history. There was continued drinking and and driving. There was uh, my client's sexuality. There there were some issues with uh, CPS and child support and unemployment. Like like horrible horrible facts that. On the motions and limine, I, I think the judge made the obviously correct rulings and kept it out. Well, this lawyer, oh, I moved for a mistrial twice. Um, this lawyer did not seem to mind violating motions and limine. Like every every opportunity he had, he was more than willing to introduce facts that had previously been ruled inadmissible. And in the opening statement, he had a PowerPoint that had a lot of the stuff I just talked about in it. And while he wasn't coming out and saying it, so if you read the record, you're not going to see it on his PowerPoint. And he would leave it up for crazy amounts of time, you know, whatever. And and I would make the objection and he would just keep steamrolling through, leave it up. And as if there was no regard for the court's rulings or for, or for what was going, he did not care. He did not care. And I clearly, you know, that impression didn't go over well with the judge or the jury or with me because it, it, it didn't matter in the end, but his witnesses were no better. And, and so, so the, the, the next, you know, place maybe is that we, I go through my case, I put on the case, we call the store clerk, the manager. I can't remember if we talked a little bit about what this case was about. Um, yeah. You know, you gave us a very, very just, brief snippet that involved a, a convenience right. store. So convenience uh, yeah, so, so convenience yeah, stores that are open 24 hours a day are dangerous. And there's a scientific correlation between robberies. This is a thing. A convenience store robbery is a thing. It's it's one of the most widely studied um 
kind of like business dangers out there. It's it's extensive. And we know certain things are going to increase the likelihood of a convenience store being robbed. And we know that operators of these businesses have to do certain things to prevent it from happening. So, th- so this was a store in a, in a company that could have cared less. And it, the store was dangerous. The employees were asking for help. And there was just this nonstop barrage of criminal activity on the property. And so that was that's kind of the the duty and the breach, and then there was how the clerk actually handled the robbery, where he escalated it, and then asked my client to kind of help. So anyway, so we so I put on my case. I have a great expert on liability. The employee and the manager of the store were phenomenal. They'd been deposed, so I knew you know what their story was. And the defense is now calling their witnesses. And their whole theory of the case was just a character assassination of this poor guy, you know, just tear him down as much as possible as if he's unworthy as a human for any type of compensation, right? He's not worthy of being helped. And, it's one of those things where you you get the defense medical examination opinions and you read the reports and you don't know if you're grateful because it's so far beyond the pale of reasonable or you don't know if you're terrified because you know how horrible they make your client sound and yeah so so my client suffered a traumatic brain injury and from that traumatic brain injury came the the usual suspects of psychological fallout of depression anxiety post traumatic stress disorder and the, he had significant functioning problems and the the like all of the headaches vision audio audio disturbances all of that stuff paled in comparison if you can imagine to a grand mal epilepsy that was poorly controlled that had caused respiratory failure you know and the defense was oh he's not that hurt and if he just took his medications he'd be fine and all of the problems he's currently having he had before and why did he have it before? Well, because he's just right this miserable human being that had a horrible life who brought all these things on. And so the neuropsychologist is has I'm cross-examining the guy and I asked him this question. It was something to the effect of you know, tell us tell the jury you know one thing about Mr. Tisdale that you respect. And he couldn't do it, Scott. He couldn't do it. And I sat there and the silence grew. And I'm not going to, you know, like, I'm not going to stop the silence. Like, come on, come on, guy. Like, let's hear it. There's got to be something in this human being that you seem as redeemable. And the next thing that happened was this 
disturbing display of, I would describe it as hatred, where he starts spouting out all of the things he was instructed not to talk about. (laughs) You know, like his face went ugly and he just starts saying, well, this is a person who is a drug addict. This is a person who's gay. This is a person who just continues to drink and they keep getting arrested. And this is a person whose kids were taken from them by CPS. And, um, of course, you, you, you know, we're supposed to be in control of our emotions, right? We shouldn't be overtaken by them. And we should let our emotions flow through us and handle things professionally. Isn't that what jurors expect, right? We're professionals. We should behave this way. Well, this was a moment where I wasn't capable of doing that. I mean, I was, I was, I was, in, I was dismayed after the opening statement you know, I don't know, unethical behavior, every chance up until this point, right? These little pieces of evidence were being interjected into the trial. And now here we have the neuropsychologist just destroying my client or so he thought because of character flaws. And I'd already moved for a mistrial for at two times at, at the point for this exact reason, you know, I'd already moved for a mistrial and I just, finally, I just flew, I just threw up my arms. I said, you know, let's talk about this. You know, instead of, you, you know, well, the first question I said, did your lawyer, did your lawyer talk to you about motions and eliminate and tell you that you're not supposed to bring this stuff up? You know, was that ever explained to you? And, and there was an objection that was sustained and, so I'm like, well, let's just talk about it. Let's just let's just talk about these things. And I don't remember. I think I went into the CPS allegation because that was the one where I was the strongest. He he just made stuff up. And I just I told my client's story of what actually happened. He, his kids were never taken by CPS. And I just asked the leading questions that set that out. Um to try and get a more balanced perspective that this guy's nothing more than a hired hitman to lie, you know? And, and I, and obviously the trust that I had developed with the jurors through jury selection and opening statement and in the cross examinations of previous witnesses clearly established who had the truth on their side and, and, and what the motives of these people were. And I can feel the sort of the waves building in your case through your, you know, sharing with the jury the truth contrasted with the lies that that the defense case, you know, apparently was filled with. Um, where do we need to go next? You know, I think that this is a good time to just talk about credibility and trial and how important, you know, our, 
our honor is and our behavior is because once you cross the line of honesty or ethical behavior or or doing what you say you're going to do right in opening statement once you cross that line by the time it gets to closing argument you're done and the law as we go through these jury instructions i you know i've done a, a lot of trials and i've read a lot of these jury instructions over and over and over again in different you know all sorts of different jurisdictions and states and i still don't understand a lot of them you know what i mean like the way they're written and the way they talk about the law and 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 human suffering and damages it's it doesn't just jump out at you as like oh that makes perfect sense and so if so so frankly I believe that by the time you get to closing argument, the, your interpretation of the law is going to have a huge sway with how the jury interprets it, assuming they believe you. And if you have, if one side, if there's this huge credibility gap between the two lawyers, it doesn't, it, it, the, the closing argument at that point really isn't, the, the jury is not going to put much weight at that point into how an, a dishonest or someone they don't believe how they interpret the law. And so I, I just think that the conduct, right, of, of, of the willingness of the defense to push the limits to assassinate a good person's character really hurt the credibility, you know, the lawyer. And that was a strategic choice. And I, I just, for the life of me, you know, I just, I, I can't understand how people are so willing to attack other humans. You know, it's such an ugly trait. But unfortunately, in this line of work, we see it all the time, you know, from the doctors, from the insurance adjusters, you, you know, they're so jaded in how they view, you know, claimants that they, they are simply incapable of turning it on and off. And so when the chips are on the line and there's jurors sitting in judgment of the facts, they don't even realize how unfiltered their normal behavior is because this is how they treat people. You know, they're incapable of seeing that the judgment is poor because that is their judgment. That is who they are. And that's not a good place to be. Yeah. Eric, can you take us, I understand, after closing, um, you were convinced that you'd lost. Take us there. Yeah, you know, it gets harder and harder to go there because um, nothing could have been further from the truth. Uh, but we have these doubts that we carry with us through life, you know, and I think these doubts are accumulation of our past failures that kind of infiltrate the present. And, you know, these disappointments of trials of the past where you know you won and you hear the verdict and you're just devastated. So you never know, you know, it's like you never know how these things turn out until the verdict is announced. And so I, 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 I really, you know, I, I did, we were sitting and we had rented this space at the community college to just have as our like home base. And we were sitting in that room 
around this table and there wasn't a lot of talking going on. And we're just sitting around. This was day two of deliberations. So we knew that at some point there had to be a question or we were getting into this point where, you know, we're five, we're four or five hours deep into the process. And we get a question, we get a call from the court and your heart just stops beating or it starts racing, whatever. And the question had to do with liability and proximate cause. And I, and of course I did not like the question because that was the, you know, you know, the issue in this case is proximate cause and intervening acts of a third person. And, you know, is the chain broken? And I didn't, it scared the living daylights out of me. And the judge, you know, says what they often say, which, you you know, on a side note, I, I wish that I had been more forceful with the judge to actually address and answer the question in a more forthright way instead of read the instruction. But that's what they were told. And 15 minutes later, they came back with a verdict. And And I had, um, you know, made a, I, I had tricked myself or I had convinced myself that this is bad. And it was confirmed in my mind when, when we're sitting there at the table and people start, fi- the jurors file in, right? And this is the moment of intense anxiety because it's it's happening. And you know that the decision has been made. And it's in their hands and they're going to hand it to the bailiff and give it to the court. And not one juror as they walked into that courtroom looked at me. And having been there before, when that happens, I've come to be conditioned to believe that that's a death blow. You know, not one person had a twinkle in their eye and... uh, 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 you know, a wrinkle in their face that could only come from a smile, you know, behind the mask. Not one person looked at, 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 at me. And so I just, I, 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 I just dropped my head in, in sorrow that I knew what the judge was going to read. I, I was just preparing myself for that. And, uh, you know, um, Obviously, as the judge worked her way through the verdict, nothing, it just, it was just relief. It, I, I don't want to say it was elation. Um, it was gratifying. I was proud of the jurors. I was proud of me. I was proud of my client for, you, you, you know, it's not fun for them to go through this process. Yeah. And, and, yeah, you know, it's it's just, you know, I'm, I want to jump back, Scott, unless there's something right now you want to say. No, I want no, to jump back it. to that moment after closing argument before we went to the room that we had rented. When I sat down in the front seat of the car, I wanted to just sob. Like I fought back 
this intense grieving of like this emotional rush of just wanting to break down and cry. You, you know, and I don't know what that was about. You know, the, 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 you know, I've done cases where as soon as it was, it was done, I'm laid out like horribly sick because you put so much energy and, um, emotional investment and adrenaline goes into it that when your body you're finally done it's 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 weird yeah you know but i it was it was intense you know i had this like impending sense of doom like it's over and i don't think you did enough (laughs) and then i woke up the next morning and I couldn't have felt better. This is after closing argument. So they we we closed at oh gosh. They had like half a day to deliberate. I think they we we actually got done in the morning with closings, I think, or maybe yeah. And so I went to bed that night just second guessing everything I'd done, what I what I had, you know, like was it enough? And then the next morning when I woke up. I just, I felt really good. I felt like, you know, we tried the case perfectly. The closing arguments covered what needed to be covered. And it's in the hands of a good group of people that are going to see this thing through that, you know, this defendant finally is going to be held accountable. And, you know, as, as, as you know, that's how it played out. Eric, what is the, 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 I know there are many, many, many lessons in this case, and you've shared with me a little bit about how to motivate a group of people to do something that, that they would never individually do. And can you share with us your, how this sort of, what you've learned and how it ties in with your journey. Sure. So I am a big believer in the jury trial and you're going to get a group of people who collectively have experienced everything that this world can, can present from the highs to the lowest lows and everything in between. You take 12 people off the streets there's there's nothing that they have not been exposed to in life. Now, having said that, there's no way that individually their thoughts are aligned and they're going to see things the same way, right? And so as a trial lawyer who's asking for justice, to you apply the laws to the facts of the case and you're going to spit out a verdict that, you know, you know as we love to say, and it's just more true to this day than ever, right? That, that what, what that verdict represents is the conscience of the community. It's the voice. It's what our future needs to be. It's what the present is about. And I believe that these ideals of justice are tied to 
something much bigger and greater than the facts of the case and even the law. I, I, I believe that justice exceeds the space that the law provides. And within each individual, as different as those experiences are that collectively make up the whole spectrum of life, do you know what they all have in common? Every single one of those Every human being on this planet has, has, has one thing in common, and that is this burning desire deep inside of them to matter, to make a difference, and to be heard, and to live a life of our choosing and our destiny, you know? And that's, that's pretty profound stuff. If you think about how important each individual life is now, there are certain people that want to die, you know, and they commit suicide. And even that person, it's not like th th there's something inside of them that is sick and that needs to be replaced or go away, which we all have. And in that process, we, we kind of grow. But the, the idea of 12 people getting together to do justice, to me, is a spiritual journey. It's a spiritual journey that evolves through the process of the trial. Yeah. And how is this tied to your personal journey? Now that's exactly it, Scott. Um, that is ex that, um, and that's a hard question. You know, in two thousand and one, I was introduced to this concept that you can't ask other people to do something unless you yourself are willing to do it, and. Uh, and an ancillary concept is no one if you don't if you don't believe in yourself or you don't believe what you have to say well you know what it's pretty much a certainty that other people aren't going to believe it and so you have to dig down deep within your soul and do the hard work to to to, to learn who you are And that's a scary journey. And I, and I, of course, I'm talking about the Trial Lawyers College and um, the work that we both did at Thunderhead Ranch, you know, under the, the brilliance of, of Jerry Spence, you know, it's like, who are you? Like, who is the authentic you? And, um, not everyone is willing to take that journey. Not everyone is willing to, to, to strip down through the layers to do the hard work of exposing your flaws, you know, like the sickness inside of you, which by the way, we all have, you know, there's no one that hasn't thought of 
horrible things from homicide to suicide or crazy disgusting thoughts you know like that's part of living and the, and the, the scary part is if you're not willing to admit it or you're not willing to do the hard work to to uncover you know what's driving your feelings why do you react to certain people in a certain way and so that process began in 2001 so 20 years ago and along the way as i as i went and i was willing you have to be willing to go down these journeys you know like an openness and a willingness to just receive you know other messages in life and as i as i got further along into the personal work of just like who am i right one of the most profound oldest questions on the planet well who am i what am i doing where do i want to go with this life intense you know, deep reflection on these really simple and sound questions but overly complex in reality the deeper i got into understanding my own flaws and my trauma that was inflicted on me the more open i came to seeing it in everyone around me and how we individually kind of go through life on this journey or in these moments and so here's where the next big jump came scott was so that was profound like that's profound work when you're willing to open your soul up and un uncover and and just open up the the nasty things about who we are and what was done to us and just deal with it so that we're not carrying it around right there's we're as sick as our secrets or the things that we can't talk about control us right those those truisms that hold us back in life when you're willing to go to the things that you can't talk about that's life-changing stuff but no matter how much work I, I i did in that department there was something deeper that was still eating away at me and the next layer above that that gave me you know, a breakthrough was conquering was, was the 12 steps, you know, my, my work as an addict, which, you know, alcohol and marijuana got the best of me and inflicted severe damage on my personal life, professional life, my physical health. And I, and I like was on my knees crawling into the AA halls looking for help. And it was the it was the twelve steps, you know, that start out with this concept of powerlessness. You know, we're powerless over alcohol, and our life has become unmanageable. And when you when you can grasp, by the way, each twelve steps are just basic truths that, in and of themselves, are just common sense. It's how they're strung together that gives you an approach to life that is magnificent. It's I mean, it's brilliant. But step one, I'm powerless over certain things. And when you can recognize your powerlessness, you're actually empowered. 
think of the times that you have spent contemplating and obsessing and trying to solve a problem you have that you simply don't have the power to solve. Well, how much healthier would you be if you could intellectually recognize you have no power over this particular event? So just let it play out and see how it goes, you know, and just adjust to it. So that's step one. And the last step is the spiritual principle of give of, of generosity. You, you know, the, the, what we, you know, the gift isn't complete until you give it away. You know, you 12 step someone. And that's being generous and helping other people. And, and then the 10 steps in between there are, are just equally magnificent. But that was the beginning of a spiritual journey that took me, you know, to amazing places working with Brant Secunda, who is an incredibly powerful shaman from the Huichol, um tribe out of Mexico. I did, I did some work um, with some other spiritual, like, I don't know, you know, like they just bring so much. And you realize that there is, we're just scratching the surface of our understanding of what it means to occupy this this little tiny space we have right here and now. Wow. You know, Eric, there's so much wisdom that, that you share, and I'm looking forward to continuing to uh, spend time with you and learn from you and yeah. follow your journey and follow my journey. And I'm so thankful that you, you, you know, shared your thoughts with us today. And there's, there's a, there's gotta be a book on uh, this and I'm looking it, forward to it. It's already been written, book. you know, thank you. I mean, it's, yeah, there's so many great self-help books out there. Well, what give, give us, give us in closing, just give us um, your tips or your advice for becoming, becoming whatever, whatever we want Mm -hmm. to become. Wow. I, I think that there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of fear that people are carrying right now. And I think that these messages are being like I don't know I think of like a laser that's shooting like toxic stuff into you you know like these images of negativity right that is that 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 I don't know if that's true or not Scott I don't know if that's right or not but I th- I think that what I what I do know with 100% certainty is that we carry a, an idea of what we should be. And it's not based on what we want to be. It's not based on who we really are, but rather we carry this idea of what we think we should be based on some external source or pressure. And the advice that I would say is, you know, what I just said that what I did, which was who am I? 
Like, why am I feeling this pressure to be something? What does that say about me? And and can I admit that my thoughts are, are creating, you know, a negative emotion and that I need to get on top of this stuff. And I need to, I need to just break it down to its most basic kind of level of who am I and what do I want to do with the rest of my life and be true to yourself and be willing to admit, right, that I'm suffering, that my life isn't going the way I thought it should go, that I do have emptiness and, and pain and sorrow and be willing to open that up and deal with it. Because what you will find is in that part of you that is hurting is the next level behind that and underneath it is the next level of wisdom and and gratitude and 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 meaning you know like we i was talking earlier about you know someone who has a part of them that needs to die and literally that part of 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 you that needs to die will literally cause some people to take their lives and it makes it just it makes me so sad to even think of that level of suffering but what happens if you deal with that part of you that needs to die and underneath that you go to a, a, a just this profound level of understanding of enrichment and faith and hope what what would happen if that's what you discovered if you dealt with the scary parts of you and i think that's where the cutting edge is and i think that's where people should be living and it never ends you know it never ends i'm grappling with my own failures as a human as 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 i am talking to you right now you know it just oh it never ends but if unless you're willing and then we're going back to this idea of this openness and willingness to go there unless you're willing to start that it's entirely possible that the, the 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 sorrow of when these days come to an end is not that you died, but that you never lived. That's profound, and I'm so thankful that you're sharing this wisdom with me and with us. And I'm just so. Uh, so excited to watch your journey and to continue to learn from you and well Scott we've, we've known each other a long time man so you as well as anyone know it and have seen it unfold and um, thank you again for doing what you do and inviting me on well, the pleasure is yeah. all mine buddy thanks Scott thanks again <laughs>